Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Nicole LaPera. Nicole is a holistic psychologist, number one New York Times bestselling author, and the founder of the Self Healers Movement. Her integrative approach to psychology, which bridges mind, body, and soul, offers guidance to her 8 million followers on Instagram and well beyond. Now, in our conversation, Nicole and I discuss her new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Relationships. Now, this book is really beautifully grounded in her personal experience of self-discovery and led her to explore the roots of her emotional unavailability. In our discussion, Nicole explains the concept of conditioned selves and describes the various archetypes that we adopt based on our early childhood experiences. Also, we probe how these childhood experiences can shape our beliefs and behaviors in our adult relationships. We discuss the role of our nervous system in shaping behaviors and habits and the importance of paying attention to our body's signals to gain clarity on our emotional and physiological well-being. We also explore how the nature of true love is not just associated with passion, but on the contrary, emerges from a parasympathetic state. And Nicole underscores the empowerment that comes from strengthening our self-awareness and intentional choices that can in turn create safer and more secure connections. Because when we practice attuning to our own hearts, it impacts our experience of feeling care, compassion, love, and gratitude on a cellular level. Okay, but before we dive in, I'm just so grateful to those of you who write reviews on Apple Podcasts that we've created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing, glorious review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Nicole LaPera. Dr. Nicole LaPera, welcome to the safe and secure container of the Commune podcast. Great to be with you. So good to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, first off, congratulations on uh, birthing your latest masterpiece. There it is behind you for those watching. <laughs> How to Be the Love You Seek. I remember when I first saw the title, I thought of Gandhi, like be the change you want to see in the world. So you're walking in big footsteps there. Um, and as I said, I've almost finished it. And, and the book is just packed with so much wisdom and actionable information uh, that can really help us heal and navigate relationships. So, so thank you for taking all of the effort to write it. I know what that gestation period looks like. It's, it's quite a birthing process. So well, well done. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. It, I put a lot into this in particular of my 
own journey and of course a lot of the tools and resources so i'm in that anxious period of awaiting for its official birth into the world <laughs> yeah i believe it, it releases on my birthday uh oh. that was another releasing that happened well almost 53 years ago <laughs> it had to we won't take this book out with forceps <laughs> the way i was taken out um uh but as you mentioned, I think we both love story as story as, uh, you know, people see their own stories within the stories of others. And I think one of the things that made this book so enjoyable for me was learning more about your own story. And uh, I guess I'd say like a significant chunk of the concepts that you excavate and unpack in this book are grounded in your own personal experience. I started calling it your uh, neurobiography, um, if you will. Um, and so let's start maybe at the beginning, like you mentioned in the book that in many of your early relationships, you describe yourself as emotionally unavailable. So what was the genesis of that unavailability and how were you able to witness it and, and eventually address it? I think the interesting thing about, um, self-defining, defining, and a lot of that definition for me is now from where I stand looking back to be able to use a label like emotionally unavailable. Cause quite honestly, the first time I heard that was after my first relationship, I was 16 years old when that ended somewhere around like 17, 17 and a half. My partner at the time, college was one of the main reasons that we had broken up though. He had cited that he felt me to be emotionally unavailable. And at that time I felt dumbfounded at hearing that label applied to myself because I didn't feel in any stretch of the word emotionally unavailable. I felt a lot of emotions a lot of the time and a deep desire to be emotionally connected to those around me, which then sequentially going from serial monogamous relationship to next relationship, I was always trying to find that level of connection. Somewhere down the line, I would complain to the next partner oh, we're not, I'm not feeling emotionally connected to you. And the relationship would ultimately end. Of course, I would assume or attribute the blame to the person. Oh, I picked the wrong person. They're not the ideal partner. It's something you're doing or not doing that's not giving me that feeling. Uh, so it took me until I was well into my 30s to begin to explore that label and why the second time I had heard it, I was in a training program to become a psychoanalyst. I had received my, my clinical degree and I was doing some of my postdoc hours at a psychoanalytic training institute. And one of the requirements is that you're in your own personal analysis, so laying on the couch, free associating. And we had a group similar experience. I would sit around the room with other analysts and just hear people share what was on their thoughts, their mind, and oftentimes what came up is their perception of you. And one of my colleagues at that time now, nearing into my 30s, and in this percolator of trying to understand myself better, had said to me or had described me as being to her impression, cold and aloof. Now here's the second time I'm hearing some version of me not emotionally giving off the feeling that I'm having inside to other people. And at that point in time, I didn't dismiss it as I did in, in my high school years. I, I looked at it, I thought, okay, what is going on here? Why does this map so, you know, kind of, right onto my own experience, which is I don't feel emotionally connected in relationships. What is going on here? Why are people perceiving me this way? And why am I experiencing my relationships this way? And I came to realize that it began as I think all of our relational habits and patterns begin 
in, a, in early childhood for me where I absolutely had a very present, I had two present caregivers. My mom, that was the core caregiver, um, stayed at home, raised me, took care of me in a physical sense, which is why for decades of life, I would never, I would have described my childhood as happy, healthy, and you know nothing lacking in any way. What I came to realize wasn't present was that level of emotional or attunement or connection that we all need as children. And as I started to learn more and more about the nervous system and the need for that safe point of co-regulation and then the trauma and dysregulation that we can store in the body, in addition to our body's protective habits, which for me was disconnecting from mm -hmm. myself emotionally. I call it in my first book, uh, I felt to be like living on a spaceship where I was going yeah. about the daily habits quite well, quite impressively, achieving a lot of things, carrying on all these relationships. Yet I was a million miles away, almost outside of myself. So now I had a bit of understanding with why I was being experienced the way that I was as emotionally unavailable, as distant to others, because I was. I was so disconnected from my physical body, where our emotions live. I was so overwhelmed with near constant stress. I couldn't navigate or tolerate my emotions. I was so focused on being what I call this concept of conditioned selves, of being mm -hmm. this unburdensome, achievement-driven person that I did create that pattern in my relationships of emotional distance while at the same time blaming everyone around me and looking for the person who would give me a different feeling. Yeah, yeah, isn't it funny? We generally, when relationships are working, we generally are trying to foist the uh, responsibility for change on the partner and then, Every once in a while, we look back in at ourselves and be like, wait, I'm having the same relationship over and over again. Who's the problem here? <laughs> um, and sometimes those uh, satori are, are hitting, hidden in plain sight. And I think you bring up that, that in the book, but it, it made me examine my own relationships um, you know, as well. I mean, do you feel that most unhealthy relationships generally have their root in these early childhood trauma or adverse experiences every way we show up in relationship predominantly or foundationally i should say our relationship with ourself how we imagine yeah. ourselves to be how we feel about ourselves, how we care for our physical and emotional self and then of course extending outward in terms of how we're showing up and relating to and connecting to those around us has our root in those earliest relationships i do believe the large majority of us as adults I like to joke that I'm looking for the unicorn who came from a securely <laughs> attached childhood experience. And, and I joke though, there's meaning in that because the generations that came before us, especially those of us in our adult years, were very limited. They were limited in access to information. I mean, I think about and, and talk about often the reality that parenting advice for decades focused just on keeping the children physically alive. There was yeah. no awareness of emotional needs or emotional connection or self-expression. So parents were doing what they were, many of them, taught to do, which is just tend to the physical needs of an infant, of a child, punish or reward their behavior, and not think about anything else. And then beyond that, all of the different, you know, access or in excess that has happened in terms of structural and political and you know, not having financial resources and having traumatic things happen to groups of people. So we all come from ancestors or lineages that I th do not think has translated to very many of us, if at all, 
having modeled to us and experienced a safe and secure environment. So what we then do show up is in more dysfunctional or insecurely attached models of being both to ourselves and to others. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I've often made this connection between, um, well, around like evolutionary mismatches, but mostly with physiological disease. So we have like an ancient genome, but then that's at odds with our modern culture. So that could be like the surfeit of shitty ultra processed calories or whatever it is. And that we are simply not evolved to manage that aspect of like modern human artifice. But I haven't ever really made that direct connection I think that you're making, which I think is fascinating, which is there is also an evolutionary mismatch with how our relationships function, where, you know, in hunter-gatherer days, you know, there's an African parable, like it literally, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Well, that's actually rooted in something that actually was true, <laughs> um, that the necessity of the tribe instantiated this, this group child rearing process. And through that, you know, we likely had a feeling of greater safety and security such that we could be our authentic selves. And now that like we've, we've, we live in these little boxes and we've sanctified individualism and um, such that, you know, the stresses of raising children um, have created, I think what you're pointing to with is an evolutionary mismatch where, you know, so many of us, and I raise my hand, you know, have to really do these deep inventory and work to kind of unpack some of these pathologies around our relationships. So it's fascinating. You talk about in the absence of safety and security um, that we begin to step into these alternate roles uh, of ourselves, sort of this folklore of who we think we are and you, you outlined some of these archetypal uh, conditioned selves. Can you unpack that and, and maybe enumerate what some of those more like prominent archetypes are? Because I think people will be able to see themselves in that. I, I know I did. In childhood, when we are, I mean, we're the, I think, if not the only one of the few mammal species that are born not fully developed. We're still developing. We're actually developing. Right. It's pretty mind-blowing when I learned our brains, at least into our 20s. So we need to really simplify what that means for us as humans. We need someone to care for us. We cannot care. We're not like most animals where, you know, they're, they're birthed. And I mean, some of the, you know, parents <laughs> leave. And that's like yeah. oh, off on your own, out into the tundra you yeah. go, Godspeed. Um, and so we need to be in connection. We need someone showing up in service of, at bare minimum, our physical survival. So with that being the case, and with us being very attuned to the world around us, always trying to make sense of it, understand it, gather meaning from it, self-define based on it, we will, because we need those connections to continue our life experience, we will not, we do not A, have the emotional maturity to be able to zoom out as we gain into adulthood and understand all of the different complex factors that might be contributing to our caregiver's presence or lack thereof or behaviors, whatever they might be. So we don't have that maturity. So we can't essentially assign any other blame than it must be something we're doing or not doing that's causing our caregiver to act or to care for us mm -hmm. in the adequate or inadequate way that they're caring for us or in what's called an egocentric point of view. We can't understand that it had nothing to do with us. It has their own childhood 
you know, that's contributing to it or their own financial circumstances or the fact that they're caring for several other of our siblings. It becomes about us. And in that state of dependency, we need to increase the likelihood that they still continue to care for us in some way, that they show up again in whatever limited way that they are able to show up. And that's where that process of modifying or adapting begins. You know, all of those moments where we heard not to be a certain way, not to express a certain feeling, not to say a certain thing, right? Not to do a certain thing or what will the neighbors think? All of these ways, or when we do something, it could even be more indirect. And mom or dad or whoever the caregiver is explodes with anger or withdraws into the other room. All of this we're attuning to and we begin to take in that information and then modify ourselves to increase the likelihood that they continue to show up in whatever capacity they're able to. These maladaptive patterns become so entrenched, right, in our lives that they become part of, of like homeostasis management for us. So we almost like adopt subconsciously these maladaptive versions of ourselves just as a as a mechanism to get through life. It's uh, I mean, I'm not looking for a free therapy session here, but like when I was a kid, I was very, very chubby throughout my whole upbringing. And I was moving internationally from country to country and, you know, new school, new language every six months or something. And all I wanted was a friend, you know, that was it. All I wanted was to fit in on any level. Of course, I didn't understand the difference between fitting in and belonging. I just was a kid, you know, so I was willing to essentially compromise my who I really was to try to fit in, to try to connect in the group. And that became an internalized part of my behavior that I brought into 52 years, basically. And um, it's only actually relatively recently that I started to unpack it. But, you know, I think one of the uh, archetypes of the conditioned self is this, you know, what I think you call the yes person. But for me, I, I've always thought about it as the people pleaser, right? Where I just go through life essentially modifying I mean, this constant dance to be liked uh, and to fit in. And you posted something on Instagram recently, which I thought was fascinating. And Gabor Monte refers to this in his book, too, about people pleasing and physiological disease, particularly autoimmune disease. Maybe you could just kind of poke at that for a second. I want to go back to, Jeff, the wisdom that you were sharing in terms of these ways of being, the selves, as I call them, conditioned selves, how they are wired into us subconsciously. I kind of refer to them as a neurobiological experience. In our mind, all of the narratives created and maintained through our life experience, what belief comes to be, who I believe myself to be, repeated in my thoughts, and then the physiology mapped onto the shifts and changes in my physical sensations, oftentimes involving my nervous system, states of activation. And then very much like a homeostatic impulse, a pullback, we become so familiar, even more problematically, so defined by these ways of being with the beliefs running through our mind and all of the fear of what happens if we're not that person, 
mapped onto all of the familiar physiology and all of the fear of that being that person, all of the fear of not being that person in our bodies. And then we're stuck being that person. So the yes person, you know, I would map that onto a hypervigilant nervous system where at some time, some place there was safety gained in as you moving around needing to assess, well, what is this group of kids like? What is, what are they going to accept? How can I, you know, remain or become friends, as you said. So this nervous system that's outwardly scanning, looking, becoming probably highly sensitive to any shifts or changes in cues in the environment, and then just acquiescing or yesing, becoming, trying to fit in. For me, this conditioned self that I relate most to is what I call an overachiever. This idea created in my mind in childhood based on this experience of getting the attention that my mom was able to give me when I was achieving academically or athletically, coupled with a running narrative that I am not considered unless I'm performing in that particular way. And then my body wired, familiar with what it is to be achieving things, right? Checking those boxes, squashing down, suppressing all of my thought, my emotions and my perspectives right, to try and be burden free or not a problem, right, not bring an emotional need like I wasn't able to in my childhood, trying to think I'm being selflessly serving others. And in reality, I'm just so focused on this one aspect of my action as opposed to myself. On the other side of, of the overachiever is an underachiever who might have a belief, again, created in an early childhood experience that it's safest or more, you're more securely connected if you're not, not like me achieving, if you're in the backdrop, if you make no noise, right? And then we embody that kind of timidity and that kind of repression of ourselves. We go into the background in all of our relationships. And a final one I'll just really quickly share, because I think this is another common one, is a, a caretaker, a caregiver, right? In childhood, if you were needed to be in care of, your parents, your siblings, maybe even yourself at an early age parentified. And now you become that same person across all of your relationships. Again, sometimes even uh, believing that that's what it is to be loving in a relationship, always self-sacrificing and giving to someone else. Um, and for me, there was a lot of, and one of my, I hope one of the takeaways from any of my work, this book in particular, is helping us all redefine, first explore what our definition of relationship is and what conditioned way we're probably showing up in them, resulting in feeling disconnected, unfulfilled, maybe resentful oftentimes in our relationships and giving us a new definition of a more safe and secure connection and love so that we can evolve and teach ourselves. Because that's the beautiful thing about our brain and body. These neural pathways that are very wired into our subconscious are also very changeable with new choices throughout time. Yeah, absolutely. This is the, I, perhaps the most exciting part of 21st century medicine is that between the epigenome and neuroplasticity and the microbiome, like genetic determinism is basically waning. It's on its way out. And, you know, this is, gives us tremendous agency, right? Over our own, um, our own journey, uh, towards health and, you know, health in the broadest sense, you know, from relational health to physiological health to spiritual health, et cetera. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting as I was reading the book, 
um, you know, I started to think about really try to unpack my own journey. And I think that's the amazing thing about books. They're yours until you press send, <laughs> then they're everybody else's book. You know, um, So everybody's reading in to the stories that, that you share. And they're not just your stories in the book. There are other stories, too. And, um, you know, I started to realize, yeah, I, because I was always trying to fit in and always trying to please that. I was never in this safe and secure environment, really, in my own neurobiology. And I, I literally looked at the playground when I was a kid, but as society, as I became older, as a Serengeti, right? So I was like scanning the Serengeti, perceiving threat, and literally in my sympathetic nervous system, you know? So what do you do when you're always in that, you know, high cortisol state and, and you know, you're your your sort of aperture is very narrow and you know your heart is always beating and your glucose is always like flowing into your extremities or whatever you're never in this place of peace and serenity and connectivity um so maybe could you take a minute and explain sort of the relationship there between your autonomic nervous system your neurobiology and the ability to forge healthy loving relationships. In addition to learning about epigenetics for me, which came out of my clinical training, which opened, completely opened the door yeah. for possibility in my own life, my own you know personal struggle with anxiety that my even field had, had taught me up until that point that that was genetically determined. And I saw similar habits and patterns in my family. So why would I, you know, do anything but manage these symptoms for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. learning about possibility and lifestyle and all of the different choices, including the gut microbiome and all of the ways that I was inflaming and continuing to keep my, my nervous system in that sympathetic mode that eventually led me to shut down and go into that dorsal state, learning about my nervous system. Again, outside of being taught it connects your brain to the rest of your organs in school, yeah. there was little else. And I'm hoping and that as training programs are becoming more trauma-informed and polyvagal theory is becoming a more frequent point of conversation that I'm hoping training has changed. So at my time, none of that was, was taught in terms of the foundational role that the autonomic nervous system plays in the entirety outside of, again, it runs your heart and your, your, you know, your organs and your your blood flow and your breathing pattern and your digestion, it wasn't touched on in terms of what impacts it and what does that then create in our habits and behaviors externally. Mm -hmm. And once I learned that and then began to attune to my own body, because by that point in time, not having that emotional attunement, feeling consistently overwhelmed within childhood, a lot of health crises in the home, growing up in a city environment, even going back to really disconnected from our ancestral, you know, uh, in our environments, how we grew very unnatural, keeping myself exhausted, passing all of my physical limitations was so disconnected from my body and my body went into that shutdown state, which added more insight into why I was so emotionally disconnected. And like I described earlier, I was, I was disconnected. That spaceship was one of those functions of that dorsal state of shutdown. So when we begin to pay attention to our body, as I know, again, wasn't a traditional part of conversation in my, my training program, though the more we attune to our body, the more we can begin to notice 
when we're in those different states of activation. And I truly believe the large majority of us are either cycling in and out of them, you know, consistently throughout a day, whether or not there's a actual objective threat present. And some of us remain stuck in some of these responses for, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. We're in that dorsal state of shutdown and we cannot get out of it. So as we begin to understand what our body's cues are and what state we're in, then we can begin to make those intentional choices to shift ourselves out of them. So the three main points and areas that we can all begin to pay more attention to are our muscles, the state of muscle tension. Are my muscles tense? Am I even clenching? Maybe my fist or my jaw? Do my muscles feel at ease and ready to move if I desire or need to move? but I don't feel like I'm agitated or right clenching them? Or do my muscles feel so weak, heavy, fatigued, like I couldn't get off the couch if I needed to, right? So when they're that kind of tension state is that sympathetic, that weak, heavy, cannot move state is that dorsal vagal state, that shutdown. My body is conserving energy is quite literally shut down. We can pay attention to our breathing. Is it quick and from the chest, indicating that sympathetic activation, right? I'm on edge, I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop. Is it coming from calm and deep and even in my belly? That would be that grounded state that we're ideally looking to be in. Or is it constricted? Am I holding my breath? Another one of those signals that I'm in that shutdown state. I would tune into my body, right? Noticing the weakness of muscles, a lot of tension around my midsection, bracing myself in that freeze mode of dorsal and I'd be holding my breath a lot. And then we can begin to pay attention to our heart rate similarly, right? Is my heart rate beating, pounding out of my chest in that sympathetic overdrive? Is it more more or less my natural rhythm in that calm grounded state? And is it imperceptible? Maybe I can't even attune to it, again, because I'm a million miles away, disconnected. And once we get, get that clarity, now we can begin to see the behaviors that map on. Okay, well, what is my mind saying in these moments? What is the story that's connected to what's happening, creating that activation likely? And then ultimately, what am I doing next? In sympathetic, am I hypervigilant, waiting for the next shoe to drop, having an anxiety experience? Or am I erupting and exploding? I call it eruptor mode. It's another way sympathetic energy can come out. I'm screaming, I'm yelling right? I'm, I'm criticizing everyone around me. When I'm noticing I'm in that dorsal mode, right? Am I distracting? Am I detached? Do I have, as I did for a long time, a faraway look in my eyes? Am I ignoring difficult conversations? Am I ignoring the people that are around me? I'm somewhere else entirely. And then we can start to see this interconnection between what I'm thinking, what I'm believing about myself, other people, how my body's feeling in terms of sensations, and then what I'm doing to try and cope with those sensations. We're just not taught this concept of interoception. So you bring that up in the book. That was like a huge aha for me or body consciousness. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm a very uh, empirical person. I, I know you, you talk a little bit about that too, about your 
past, well, and present as a scientist. So you're looking for some good old fashioned <laughs> enlightenment rationality, you know? I want to say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for me, like, I, I, as I got onto my health journey, I started to, you know, look at all these, I wear all these devices, aura rings, and continuous glucose monitors, and all these things because I was like, oh, well, what I can measure, <laughs> I can improve, you know? It's like very uh, empirical approach to one's health. And it was only actually when I got more attuned with, I guess, what one might call the subjective metrics of, of well-being, of really actually trying to put my thumb on how I felt in, instead of just cognitively the labels that I put on it or the, you know, how many milligrams per deciliter my blood glucose was. I actually thought it was very interesting when I could start to merge the two, honestly, when I would like scan my CGM and all I, you know, I'd be like, whoa, I'm like in crazy peak glucose mode. How do I actually feel right now? And it was a really interesting um, jump in my own well-being when I could start to actually um, sort of meld the two. And like one of the, another, there's so many ahas in the book, honestly, that I had you know, one was just the nature of love itself. Um, I think so many of us associate love with passion and with a more kind of agitated, sympathetic state, but actually, truly, and this was elucidated beautifully in the book, it really does emerge from this parasympathetic state. And so th that only underscores the importance of creating secure and safe environments for yourself. Um, anyways, I want to get to the embodied self and what that means and, and how we access it. So could you unpack that? Because I think for a lot of people, and even for me, that was a, a difficult concept to grok at one juncture. You, I think, beautifully even illustrated it in terms of First realizing, um, I always will break change transformation down into two steps, simplified. Of course, the first one is become conscious of, of what's happening or not happening in any given moment so that you can make that second step, which is new choices to do or shift or change or transform whatever it is that you want. And you, you Jeff, beautifully illustrated it when you said, I, I notice I'm, I like numbers, right? I like to kind of have this external think about, maybe even consume the content that teaches me the glucose number that I have to have and right. Right, thinking, thinking, thinking. And I noticed that I wasn't able to, or I wasn't naturally or consistently shifted into marrying that with, oh, okay, well, this number is the objective representation of internally these sensations. Right. And I'm saying that there because I do believe a lot of us in terms of the embodied self, we spend a lot of time disconnected from our physical vessel, our person, often for protective reasons, because it's safer to be thinking about things, to be reading books, sometimes even in ways that are celebrated or acknowledged as helpful right, in our society, consuming information. Look at all the information we have available to us. There's a million different perspectives about each, you know, subject you want to think about in the analytic world or the psycho psychological world. I think a lot of times there's this mis this interpretation or idea that endless self-analysis is helpful while I'm engaging in my therapy practice. I'm thinking about myself. I'm observing myself. And if we're, again, only doing it in our minds, 
not to criticize any of you out there who's like, oh my gosh, I do this. Chances are you're doing that as, as a protection because if you were to begin to pay attention to what's in your body, there might be some uh, uncomfortable, overwhelming sensations or emotions happening. So then we think we're doing something positive and we're saying protect it from our embodied presence. And again, that began likely at an early time, an early place where that was a helpful adaptation. Thinking about things, getting lost in a fantasy world, reading all of the books, worrying about everyone else, keeping our focus away from our body helped us feel safer because there was too many overwhelming feelings that we weren't supported in, in coping or in being with and then allowing our body to naturally release them. So the embodied state is that state of presence. I mean, consciousness is really, I like to use the, I don't know if it's an analogy or metaphor, the you know picture of the overhead lights on in a room where I'm aware, that's essentially what consciousness is, and I can become aware of the thoughts in my mind. I'm not hyper-focused on them. I'm not down the rabbit hole as I call it, right? I can't, I'm just emerged. When I started to even think about consciousness and teach about it in my first book, How to Do the Work, I realized how many people think we're the thoughts in our head. We don't mm -hmm. have any separation to say, oh, that was a thought I just had. And now I can refocus or unhook my attention from that thought and pay attention to the TV that I'm watching or drop into the body that I'm living in. So when I turn those overhead lights on, I can begin to choose and see what's going on in my mind and unhook and begin to then pay attention to what's going on in my body. And the reason why this is so incredibly important is because our brain or our mind and our body are in communication and it's a two-way street all day long. And this is why for so many of us who have tried affirmations until we're blue in the face, who have tried the gold standard of therapy, CBT, change your thoughts, right? Change how you feel, change what you do. Mind is powerful. I still use affirmations in my membership, Self Healer Circle. I still use them for myself. Though the other street of information coming up from the body, unless we're in our body to see what messages it's sending, and just to give a quick example, in that childhood of stress, all of the stress in my body, being a hippie at heart, all I would proclaim that I want is peace and love and a moment to just relax, right? I'm throwing out my peace signs right now. And in reality, in those moments, hypothetically, a Sunday, I had nothing to do, nothing's going on. There's nothing, it's not always something. I'm in a moment of peace. I couldn't actually relax. I'd be cleaning the house. I need to do something, you know, I, I can't relax until I'm done this last thing on my to-do list. I can't pay attention to the television or the movie I'm trying to watch with my partner, or I'm bringing up fights. I'm agitating my, my relationship with my partner. Why couldn't I relax when that's all I was attesting that I wanted? And the reason I couldn't relax or my mind couldn't relax was because those messages coming up from my body were not that I'm in that grounded state, like where love, like that grounded presence. Similarly, that maps onto like what you're sharing about relationships, right? If that's not what we're used to and not having, and we don't have those moments in relationships, we do begin to define love as this passion, this high, this low, these fights, and then this great sex afterward. And we don't actually have a moment because the reality is we don't. Our body is never relaxed. It's not reflected in our mind. So our mind will race with whatever our body is telling it. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I think we tend to believe that our thoughts control our feelings, that that's a kind of a monodirectional, a one-way street. Um, and 
kind of this top-down mentality of like, you know, something happens in the world, my mind puts a salience or a valence on that, and then that goes down my HPA axis or, you know, in my nervous system or whatever, and then there's a neurotransmitter or hormonal thing going on, and then that's causing my heart to palpitate and, you know, my stomach to be uneasy or whatever that happens to be. And another one of the big awakenings, I think, reading the book was understanding sort of the bi-directional nature of this highway where these um, stored neurobiological pathways are creating sensations in the body which then percolate up to the conscious mind such that the conscious mind has a thought of like, oh, well, I'm just not worthy or, oh, my God, I'm scared of that or you know, I'm fearful of success or failure or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I think that that was a, that's a really um, disruptive idea. Uh, uh, but I think it's, it's fascinating. And uh, upon deeper inspection, I think it maps out as true. Hand in hand with that, I know for me personally, when I read, I think it's Lisa Bartlett Feldman, I could be Miss, miss, miss her, missing her name a bit, mm -hmm. though she writes about um, something called the theory of constructed emotion. Well, let me pull back for one second. Learning that emotions are physiology in the body. They're mm -hmm. a messenger, essentially an interface between how our body, our physical body, our physiological body is, is experiencing the environment around us. They have important information in them, the core emotions, right? And they map onto physiological changes. That to me, because for some reason, I also had this idea that emotions lived in the mind, right? Mm -hmm. These, uh, this idea of feelings, and I didn't necessarily understand that. No, that's, that's shift and, shifts and changes in my neurobiology, my sensations, and everything in my body. And then learning about the theory of constructed emotions, which argues, and I believe it to be true, there's a lot of different theories of emotions and where emotions come from and what results in an emotion, but this one is the one that resonates most significantly with my life experience and with what I see in, in so many. And that is that emotions are individual constructions, right? They are not an objective reality, which the simple, you know, kind of lived example is when two people have the same experience and don't feel the same, right? If right. a door slams and I'm with someone who in their childhood, there was a lot of slamming doors or their parents barged in on them and they have a complete startle response jump out of their skin. And I simply go, oh, I wonder what that was, right? We yeah. didn't both have the same objective experience in that moment. And that's because emotions, right? The physiology of our childhood, then the meaning that many of us were taught to make of it, the stories we're telling ourselves is going to be then what contributes to that person saying, oh my gosh, someone's coming to get me or yell at me. And that's why they're jumping out of their skin and me saying, oh, a loud noise. Interesting. Was that the wind? and not having that same interpretation. Yeah, it's like a, a snake slithers across the floor and there's me who would freak out and then there's like a herpologist, a snake <laughs> expert next to me and he's like, no, that's fine, doesn't have." And so we're all, due to our conditioning, we're all having um, discrete emotional responses. And I think that goes back to really pointing to how we can create safe and secure environments you know, for ourselves.
you know, I know in the book that you outline many of your physiological health protocols that can positively impact relational health by creating safety and security in the body. Um, can you talk about a few of those health protocols that, that have become part of your life? When I think about lifestyle health, creating health, I always like to emphasize what I would call the two different levels that we want to operate. There's the consistent lifestyle choices that we are benefited to, you know, embody a safe and secure relationship with our physical presence that then will extend outward through the you know, energetic communication that our safe and secure nervous system and our coherent heart and brain will give to those around us, thus creating more safety and the security in our relationship. And I just want to, I'm being intentional here because I think in some of these moments as human beings will do, myself included, we just want to have the thing in our back pocket for when we're becoming dysregulated or upset to shift and change in that moment, to stop that reaction that we want to avoid or break that habit. And we miss how foundational some of these practices mm. need to be to really be able to gain the traction in that moment. Yeah. So the daily things are tending to our physical body's core needs. Again, just simplifying it, our nervous system is in our body. Okay, so let's make sure our nervous system is getting what it needs, which is nutrients. Eating nutrient-dense foods and avoiding all of the many, as you mentioned earlier, all the processed world that we live in, in terms of food, quote unquote, product that are inflaming or activating our nervous system, our immune system, keeping us inflamed and reacting even to our own internal landscape. So nutrients, as much as our body needs movement, I mean, I go back a lot, like I said earlier, to ancestors as well, where we had to walk long distances to procure the food. We're built, our muscles are built and need to you know, discharge that energy to be stretched, to be moved. And on the other side of that, to have moments of rest, to have restorative sleep at night. And then back to the breath. We need oxygen, water, right? Our oxygen to be nourishing, coming calm and deeply, not having a breath cycle that's even just activating our nervous system even more. So for me, those are foundational choices that I can begin to make. And I do stay committed to each and every day where I pay attention to the food my body wants. And this is another moment where, you know, you're like, you're talking earlier about kind of tuning into sensations. I've come to realize our body is very intelligent. And I was, I came from a model of eating and I talk about a lot of my eating, all my just lifestyle habits I gathered from our childhoods where we all gather them. And I was taught to eat certain meals at certain times of the day. There was a window for breakfast, a window for lunch, a window for dinner. Didn't matter if I was hungry or not. There were certain foods appropriate at each of those hours. Didn't matter if my body wanted those foods or not. I had a, a model in my family of loved through eating. Um, my mom, one of the ways she was able to show me an absence of emotional care was make my favorite meal. There was a bit of scarcity thought happening around food. My parents who came from mm. post-depression era and for who were raised, um, my mom in particular, right, with, with financial insecurity in childhood. So there was this idea that we need to hold on to food, eat more now so you're not hungry later, finish your plate, don't you love me? Don't you like what I made? And I carry those habits into my adulthood. So it would look like every day I would eat these certain hours, regardless of my, my body was hungry, I would eat certain foods and I would try to finish my plate because I didn't wanna waste. And now I've learned to tune in daily 
because mm -hmm. I, I know that this is another area in nutrition where there's so much information out there. When I learned about the importance of the gut biome and I dove into all these different ways of eating, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much. And I know a lot of listeners probably are overwhelmed by well, what eating protocol? Is it paleo? Is it keto? Is it vegan? Is it this? Is it that? And what I've learned, the more I start to pay attention to my body, my body tells me when it's hungry, when it's full, and what it needs to eat. Same mm. goes for movement. I start to feel agitated, pent up energy, tight, and that's when I stretch or I move a little bit more vigorously. My body also tells me when it's tired and fatigued, it's muscles, and when it needs to stop moving and it needs to rest. And then I've attuned more just to my general breathing in general and kind of more consistently and have taught myself how to give myself that safe breathing. And the more consistently we practice those, then in those moments of acute stress, when I'm paying attention to my tension increasing, my heart rate increasing, right? All of the things that we're now noticing are happening as I become stressed because I've observed myself outside of stress. Now right. I can notice and intervene at a time before I lose that kind of state of conscious control. And then I do the thing I'm going to do anyway. Right. And then I can start to, in those moments, use those even same tools, moving, removing myself, taking a vigorous walk, taking some deep breaths, grounding my attention, getting it out of the mind that's only agitating myself more and paying attention to how it feels to be with my, my heels grounded on the earth or my body on my chair or whatever it is. Then those in the moment tools become not only possible, you remember to do them, they become much more impactful. Yeah, I totally agree. I used to be a crisis meditator. Right? <laughs> I'd be great. like, um, you know, I feel claustrophobic yeah. on the plane. Meditate. Yeah, right. Wait, it's not working. <laughs> What's going on? They said it would work. But I think uh, David G, who's a wonderful meditation teacher, uh, he used to have a joke where he would say, um, you know, when you go to the dentist, it's not profitable to you know, not brush your teeth all year and then the night before brush them for two hours. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's just you have to integrate these things into sort of, um, you know, regular practices. That's why they call them practices. And, um, and uh, yeah, so one of the um, other components of the book that I found really interesting was about heart coherence. And I'll kind of rewind just for a second. Now you know that I'm sort of like a empirical um, guy that loves to look at, you know, hard evidence. I was like, you know, okay, well, wait a minute. Is, are we really like radiating out electromagnetic frequencies from the heart? Let me look that up a little bit. And sure enough, there's all of this evidence. <laughs> you know, I started to understand, of course, this is how I go about it. It's like, oh, there's these little myocytes in the heart and it's contracting. And when they contract, there's this depolarization and they're sending out, you know, a wave of energy and then a wave, you know, radiates out. But I think where it gets more interesting, honestly, is the sensitivity that we can have both to our own heart energy and the attunement that we can have to other people's heart energy. That uh, was just fascinating. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think many more of us are having that, those moments of attunement, and we don't have the language or realize what's happening. And right, very commonly, I'm sure many of you have had an experience of a loved one who had a heavy heart, something on their mind, something had happened earlier in the day. And Right, whether they come into the room or you're engaging with them for the first time after this had happened and before they say a word you feel right that something's something's up 
something happened. You might even ask them. And another example I commonly give is even this is not even with a loved one or anyone you know, you walk into a room and you can feel that there was maybe a tense argument that just happened in that room. No one's saying anything anymore. There's no more screaming and yelling. You didn't hear it. You just walk in. You're like, is everything okay? <laughs> What's going on in here? And you get that sense. And that's what it is. It's this internal. And for me, Jeff, learning about the heart and the power with, again, coming from a field that just praised the mind and all of the power of the mind and the nervous system that I learned. Okay, the nervous system is sending out all this electromagnetic energy too. How cool. And then I learned about the heart and how much more powerful that heart energy is. And those are the moments where those sensations, when we can, same thing with us, when something's on our heart, we have a heavy heart or we just went through something stressful. Right? We feel differently in our person. We interact differently than with the world around us. And chances are those around us are sensing those internal shifts before we even have to say anything. And the empowering side of all of this beautiful information is not only understanding that we can be more attuned now to our own hearts and you know, be more aligned in our heart and our action, our heart and behavior, our heart and brain. I think that's what heart brain alignment, if we wanna give it a simple kind of day-to-day -day definition, right, is acting in alignment with how I'm really feeling, you know, expressing that, being in. It's not just being in a full state of, of positive emotions, it's just being in alignment between what's inside and what's, what's outside. And then learning the impact that we can have, the more aligned we are, the more able we are to connect with those heart-generated feelings of care, of compassion, of love, of gratitude, right? Because again, learning that we can even generate those feelings and bringing this full circle somewhat possible only when we're in that grounded state of presence to pay attention to our heart, to feel safe enough to generate a feeling that's joyful, that's gratitude, that's compassion, that's care, that's other focused. Because when we're in that survival mode, we are self-focused. We can only be self-focused because our survival depends on it, which is why when I offered earlier, screaming, yelling, saying, doing things that we don't want or mean, it's because in that moment, the loved one that's in front of us is now just the threat at hand, which is why we can act in a very dehumanizing way. And the more we practice this grounded state of presence and this alignment and this ability to naturally even, I believe that humans are, so it's the reason why we were able to join together in these groups that we were referencing earlier is because we can care and have compassion for even the most different person in their experiences. And we can learn how to collaboratively join together for the best of all of our interests. And again, I know that could be somewhat of a controversial belief, but I believe all of us humans have that ability. Not meant all of us are living in that embodiment, though when we do, the power our heart then has to extend outward and create safety in our relationships with what is true love, the ability for someone else to be and express themselves exactly as they are, as different as they are from us, for us to still join together in collaborative action. And then the power that extends even beyond our you know, dyadic or, you know, group of small people into the community is so very great. In my opinion, it's world changing. Well, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to look far in the geopolitical sphere right now to see how people act when they're not feeling safe and secure. 
right? Um, and that applies to all people. You know, I think it's it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a part-time Buddhist, I guess I would call myself, but you know, very um, enamored with Eastern mysticism. And really, what a mystical experience is is a transformation from the feeling of being a separate self to the sensation of being connected. And um, that again is only possible in that grounded state. And when you talk about like compassion, for example, you know, you can't, we have a word for it, which is like a symbol that we put on top of the feeling. It's like a heuristic or a semiotic. It's like, we have to find a symbol so you and I can get on a podcast and talk about it. (laughs) But what it truly is, is a feeling that is happening under the crust of conscious thought which is the the identification of someone else's suffering as your own, for example, and and like the true unmitigated desire to alleviate that suffering. Or on the other side, like the there's a Sanskrit word for it, it's my favorite concept, it's called mudita, which is the joy that you feel simply for someone else's joy, you know, without any envy or any projection of your own unfulfilled potential onto someone else, just like pure joy for someone else that accomplished something great, you know? And, you know, these are almost reflections. If we need cognitive, uh, you know, a biomarker for, for our ability to tap into our body consciousness, you know, sometimes we need those things of like, oh yeah, I really did feel suffering for that other person's suffering or joy for that someone person's joy. But the recognition that that is really just a feeling and that what we are seeking are these mystical experiences, these mystical feelings. And I think this is what your book does such an amazing job at. It starts to peel away and unwind all those patterns such that we can get to that core place of what makes being human and alive so deeply wonderful um so this is great i'm 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 deeply appreciative of it um so you know i want to ask you you know you have a obviously unique geometry in your own life with your own nature of your own personal relationships and you know i've heard it's very funny i've heard you and jenna talk about this book in a really interesting way of, of her really coming from this kind of intuitive heart-centered place initially and you coming from a very a more scientific <laughs> empirical background and like somehow like through jagged paths meeting somewhere in in the middle and it's really beautiful I, I love your repartee around it it's really just fun to listen to and i had, I had a ball um but I, I wonder like how have you been able to apply um everything that you're working on and all your work into your into your personal life my individual journey is reflected in my scientific understanding my teaching and and vice versa i think throughout thus far all of the all of the work you know that i've done and even just going back to where you started by acknowledging the kind of story nature and kind of tying into this idea of 
how we attract what we're looking for, you know, these, these compassionate, empathetic, attuned moments with other people. I think that's why story is so impactful. They are glimpses into seeing ourself reflected back and whatever the outward, you know, presentation of the individual is, however different it is from us, when you emotionally connect with someone else in some aspect of their journey, you're in that state of resonance, which then allows you to be right compassionate or joyful and our energetic, the energy of our emotions. I even read a really fascinating book. I can't remember the exact title of it right now, but it was about the um, kind of the emotions as neuropeptides, proteins throughout our body. And it mm -hmm. was citing some evidence that there's even a, an entrainment, right? So this idea of I'm joyful or I'm sad or, you know, suffering in your suffering is what I would really simplify it, right? An energetic emotional entrainment of, oh, I'm feeling that emotion as you are right, right next to you, having heard your story or being in your embodied experience. And this researcher was offering ex evidence that at the kind of hormonal protein cellular level, there's that type of entrainment that happens too, where if we want to simplify, emotions are contagious. You feel other mm -hmm. people's feelings down to our cellular functioning. And so Jenna and I, very interestingly, while we came on the journey from very different backgrounds, lived experiences or childhood experiences, I should say, and then lived experiences with me trying to be analytical and think my way and her just following her heart, wherever that took her, there was a vibrational resonance. So much so that when I created the Instagram account, which was really a function in my own healing, learning how to be me and share my story more authentically with other people, wanting to connect uh, with other humans who were living a similar experience, of course, wanting to share some of the information and the tools that I was learning. And she was someone who I noticed in the community, just what comments she would share, right? She became one of those handles. I'm like, oh, there's at Jenna Weekland right now. And there's a resonance here. Mm -hmm. So not very surprised that somewhere down the line, when the self healer circle came to be the community membership, I got really clear on how important community is, how global the community on Instagram was, was growing to and wanted to offer a space away. And when, you know, I needed to expand the team beyond my partner, Lolly and I at the time to have help, it was a very intuitive right next step because I had come to find out by that point that Jenna kind of in terms of her professional world and what she was wanting to do on her own journey in terms of purpose and passion was thinking and wanting to create the same thing. So it was this just synergistic alignment that I do believe was based on each of us, different byways to get there, but getting more connected and attuned to what it is that was in our heart me discovering that I did have a purpose and a passion after living in survival mode for decades. I thought that was one of those genetic chips that just passed me by. I would read these books of people who are like passionate and purposeful and on there, you know, doing this in their life, you know, to live their, leave their legacy. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't have that. And came to find out that when we are so locked in survival mode, those are conversations that our body physiologically is just not interested or cannot expend energy into having because we don't feel safe enough. So as I started to live in that expression, it, it is no surprise that that attraction, right? And that kind of pulling her into the business world, us finding each other, us then expanding now everything that the self-healer circle is and, you know, became, I think is a testament 
and what I hope one of the big takeaways from this book remains is, is the more clear and in alignment, the first relationship being with ourselves. Because one of the questions I do get asked is, is this a relationship book? If I'm not in a relationship or if I'm not healed on my own, is this still going to help me? And the primary relationship and much of the tools are talking about initially, at least rebuilding that connection with you, creating that safety and the security internally getting clear on who you are, what you want, what your passion and purpose is so that you can then join together more harmoniously with whether it's a business partner or a, a romantic partner or a family or a stranger on the street. Um, and that begins, and I think then you start to see this because another question is often like, well, how do you pick the right person? And I don't necessarily know if it's a picking or more of an attracting when you're in that heart brain coherent alignment and you're just expressing who you are into the world, I think it becomes much more at the vibrational energetic level that it's an yeah. attraction point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you put a great exclamation point on that, that this book is as much as this book is about healing your relationships with other people, it's primarily healing a relationship with yourself. And um, you know, sometimes I think about the golden rule, right? This is a precept that, you know, crosses almost every spiritual tradition um, to love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, we, we generally think about that as focusing outward. Oh, it's like, I've got to love my neighbor as I love myself. But inherent in that equation is actually loving yourself. <laughs> and that's the point that we that we often miss. And so this energy that we can spend to try to create self safe, secure environments for ourselves, this is not self-indulgent in the least. Um, this is absolutely um, essential to being able to create positive relationship in the world. And I mean, what is life outside of being in relationship? Life is relationship, that's it. Um, and this is why I, I think this book is so, um, is so important and, and paradigm shifting and, you know, really for, you know, anyone that needs to break these trauma bonds or identify their unmet needs, um, and build emotional connections with other, others, I just, I just couldn't recommend it, uh, more. So thank you so much for, for writing it. And Nicole, just kind of in in summary I, I wonder like if you could let people know where to find you and how to discover more about you and keep abreast uh, of all your work well thank you first and foremost jeff for yeah. all of your very kind gracious words it's as you know putting out a, a work like this especially one that's so personal um you know any moment where i can hear the impact that it has on another i'm just very so very grateful of so thank you so wholeheartedly for your generous endorsement um at this point um however it is the book i should say is available i'm hoping across all major book retailers uh, maybe even some local stores i do have a website up how to be the love you seek.com where i have some retailers that i know will be stocking the book pretty readily so you can check that out though definitely check out I love supporting locals. So check out your local bookstores. If they don't have it on, on stock, ask for it. Maybe they'll order it. <laughs> um, and across all social media, uh, I'm putting out all types of this content each and every day. There's incredible communities now that have grown 
whether it's TikTok or Twitter or YouTube or threads, or I know I'm missing one, Instagram, forgot where it all began. Uh, <laughs> right. So pretty much any, any social media platform, there's some imprint of the holistic psychologist as the handle. And again, like I said, many of these, these points, these concepts, you'll see me continuing to talk about them there. There's incredible communities of individuals who are sharing their own stories or their mm -hmm. own journeys in the comments. And my just general website is theholisticpsychologist.com. Uh, for any information on, I put resources, free resources out. I just recorded a guided meditation um, that went live a couple weeks ago. So you can sign up for my email list. I also have a free journaling practice. So I'm always putting out free resources uh, through the email list on that website. And you can get any information about Self Healer Circle, my global, global membership on there as well. Hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. I also noticed in the book that there, and I'd never seen this before, it's a great technique, I might borrow it from you, is that there are QR codes yes. that you can actually shoot with your phone and then opens it up into, a, yes. I guess, an app where people can get meditations, et cetera. It's a great idea. Loved it. Yes. Um, I, I think I put it in one of my, pre, my workbook previously and I loved it too, because I think we're going so digital though. Yes. So there are guided meditations. The scripts are written in the book, for, but for those of us, I recorded them all myself. So I can take you on that, that audio journey. Yeah. Well, you have a beautiful wilting voice. So I encourage everyone to do that. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Nicola Pera. The book is How to Be the Love That You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Your Relationships. Thank you so much for being on the show. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you again for having me and thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Nicola Pera. Her book, How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Healing Your Relationships is out now. And if you're not already, you can follow her on Instagram at The Holistic Psychologist. Okay, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap Write a Review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and certainly not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. That's the team that makes it happen. Okay, thanks. That's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>